You must leave my room. We must have regard for certain conventions. One guy isn't enough. She's got to have a convention. And hello again, Marks fans. This is Bob Gassell. You'll notice we're using our regular theme music at the beginning of this episode because I'm not really sure uh, hardcore Marks fans want to listen to an episode that begins like this. We didn't want to lose our audience before the show started, so we're playing it safe here. Anyhow, like I said, this is Bob Gassell. I'm joined once again by my trusty cohorts. First of all, a man who's having second, third, and fourth thoughts about even coming to visit America, Mr. Matthew Conium. I'll have another cup of coffee. (laughs) Stop stalling. And joining us from New York City, where even the perverts are wearing masks, here's Noah Diamond. Stark naked and wearing a face mask. And today we're here to talk about the Marx Brothers' ninth film and their third one for MGM, entitled At the Circus. You know, when we uh, were scheduling the, the shows, I made it a point to take this particular show, hosting uh, At the Circus, because of the three of us, I've always been the biggest uh, champion of the film. But, uh, you know, after watching it again the other night, <laughs> I'm, I'm not so sure <laughs> I made the right move here. Uh, this film was made in 1939, after the Marx Brothers had uh, detoured to RKO for a year to make a uh, room service, um, which... Uh, to be honest, did not get a great uh, reaction from the critics or the public. And, you know, a lot of people think that uh, the Marxes uh, came back and did At the Circus as sort of a reaction to that tepid response. And that's a reasonable thought. But the truth is that this film and the premise were actually in the works while uh, Room Service was still in pre-production. So this film was going to be made regardless of how, how Room Service turned out. Uh, Still, though, it's hard to imagine that the Marxes wouldn't have wanted to go in a different direction had room service turned out to be a big hit. Well, it's it's yeah, it's difficult to say, isn't it? Because as as you said, they had already um, signed to go back to MGM, regardless. Um, but had it been a big hit, I I can't see any reason why they wouldn't have wanted to to stick around and do something different, which was what they were going to do, which was the idea of moving to RKO in the first place, rather than you know plow the same old uh, turf. I don't know contractually where they would have where they would have stood. Well, there there were of course additional projects planned or intended at RKO had room service um, gone over better and. Whether this is exactly the story of how it happened or not, there's definitely the feeling watching at the circus that of having their tails between their legs. Um, like we sort of tried to grow and it didn't work out. So here we are doing a, a pale imitation of what we used to do rather than a new direction. Matthew, why don't you take a minute and refresh everyone's memories about how the Marxes ended up back at uh, MGM at this point? Yes, it, it is It is slightly different from, from what had been the the kind of the standard view which was that they had gone to RKO just as a as a loan out um as part of a five film MGM deal which which wasn't the case they they had as far as they were concerned and as far as MGM were concerned finished with them decisively and gone over to RKO what lured them back seems to have been Mervyn Leroy um the producer of the film because he had come from Warner Brothers to MGM 
absolutely explicitly as their replacement for Thalberg. Um, he'd been a director hitherto, but he was going to be the, their new star producer. And just like Thalberg, he was going to have his own autonomous unit where he called the shots. So he would be a buffer between his productions and Mayer, just in exactly the same way that, that Thalberg was. Um, and it was, and it was with Leroy, specifically with Leroy, that the Marxes re-signed. And I imagine he probably sold them exactly the pitch I've just given. That uh, you know, don't worry when you come back; it's going to be just like like the Thalberg days. Um, so he brought them over. Uh, he brought Irving Brecker over. That he was uh, signed to Leroy. Kenny Baker was signed to Leroy. So it was absolutely a Leroy production. Then what? What unfortunately happened was Leroy changed his mind, and the story was it was because he got so frustrated at the all the problems of producing The Wizard of Oz. So he decided that he didn't want to be the superstar producer anymore. He just wanted to go back to directing. So it was really after At the Circus that they were kind of cast adrift at MGM. As far as they were concerned, during At the Circus, they were, it was very much business as usual, like like the Thalberg days. You know, I find this film gets a very unique response among all Marx films in that there's a, a lot of people who really hate this one. You know, for some of the others they don't care for, like uh, The Big Store, Love Happy, people will just say, ah, I don't like that. That's That's no good. But there's a segment of the fandom that really hates uh, at the circus. Uh, can you explain why? I might be one of them. I, watching it this last time around, I, I hate is a strong word, especially for a Marx Brothers movie. But I really don't like this one. And I was reminded, um, partly because I like it so little, I watch it very infrequently. Uh, although certainly I saw it dozens of times when I was a kid. It was one of the few I had on, on VHS in the earliest days. So I know it very well. But yeah, I find very little to like here. And I, I seriously considered, I wound up not doing it. But after this, uh, I watched it twice recently. I, Smash your TV set? I almost <laughs> sm hurled my television into the sea. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I I almost changed my film rankings to put it below Go West. Um, mm -hmm. I, I wound up not doing that because I thought, well, when I watch Go West again, maybe I'll realize I like it even less. And I do, I do recognize that, as I believe both of you have pointed out very aptly, the highs of At the Circus are considerably higher than the highs of Go West. It has more good things in it. But I think the overall impact, it... it bothers me more, partly because Go West, in a way, like Room Service and Love Happy, feels like something different. Um, the period piece, a Western, a genre picture. So you can kind of forgive it, maybe, for not meeting the usual standards. Whereas this should have been a Marx Brothers movie, and I barely crack a smile. Yeah, again, I certainly don't hate it. Um, it's a film that I used to like a lot, and I can't remember really why but it was one that i used to be quite defensive of and i showed it i remember showing it to my sister when she asked to see a marx brothers film that was the one i picked i can't imagine in the world why now but i but i i used to basically think it was okay um nowadays it's the pretty much the only one uh where my opinion of it isn't absolutely fixed in stone and i find myself mm. liking it just a little bit less every time i see it uh which is you know a, a pity but um it, it, every time i see more to dislike and less to like 
Um, the, as, as you say, the advantage, the big advantage it's got over, over the other two is um, that, that scene in, in the strongman's cabin search where they search his room which is a which is a a terrific mm-hmm. scene and there's there are no terrific scenes in the next two uh but yes yeah, so much to dislike which i'm sure we'll get on <laughs> i always say this film has uh, more of a dynamic range than the other two uh, higher highs and lower lows um, yeah i think joe adamson put it best in his book he he writes um what is annoying about at the circus is that so many things are done well if nothing had come out right it wouldn't be such a frustrating film Sometimes the level of humor is fairly creditable. Sometimes it sinks to the level one would expect to hear exchange between foremen on a construction crew. Even when the jokes are funny, they are not paced. And they never get the snowball. They just clutter. That says it all for me. You know, so many times I think I'm watching the film I'm like, well, this material is funny, but why isn't it? It's not really making me laugh. It just it doesn't seem right. It just seems off, even when the material is good. I'm curious about Matthew, uh, about your sister. Uh, did, did she like this film? She thought it was all right, I think, which is fair enough. I think it's pretty pretty fair summation. It was a long time ago. So. Well, a lot of the, the, the satisfaction from Mark's fans is that it's not what we want or expect from the team. You know, we want them to be as fearless and in control as they were in Animal Crackers and Horse Feathers. And when they're not, it's just disappointing, no matter how funny it is or it isn't. Um, so perhaps this is better enjoyed by somebody who's not so familiar with the team. If this was your first Marx film, you would enjoy it a lot more than if it was the tenth Marx film you saw. Yeah, especially if you have a generally high appetite for comedies of the thirties and forties and aren't particularly discriminating within your love for that genre. I, mm. I mean, if your approach to the Marx Brothers is that they were, you know, they were among many peers in in the world of vintage comedy, you know, maybe they were considerably better than than most. Um, but in I don't know, in the context of 30s and particularly 40s uh, comic cinema, it, mm. it looks kind of better than it does in the context of the Marx Brothers work or, you know, the work of great 20th century geniuses of entertainment. It, it falls even more. And also, which again, we'll get on to, but it's it, the, the biggest problem with it isn't isn't the material. It's it's the, their performance performance style um pretty much all three of them actually it struck me watching it again this time obviously groucho most of all but 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 really none of them are on fire and none of them are doing what they what they do best so you don't really get a sense of what they can do and i think if you if you had to choose between the authentic marx brothers doing feeble material and these guys doing great material i think you i think you would still go for the feeble material because it, it really it's all about them they're hampered in different ways by their circumstances here. I mean, Groucho, obviously, uh, I, I know we've talked about it so many times already, and I know we'll talk about it more, his performance style, and at least one aspect of his appearance make this almost a negligible effort on his part. Chico, you know, this is post-Night at the Opera. Chico will never again have brilliant material. This is a much diminished Chico. And Harpo, who who should be able to excel in any circumstances, and I think comes off better than his brothers in this one, he, mm. though, is most saddled with the circus context and any discussion of whether this is an appropriate milieu for them, um, I think, has to center on Harpo because just as uh, in opera and races, we have to see him dressed as a lackey or a jockey. Uh, mm. When he makes his first entrance in that pelt, it's like, oh, God, this is not mm. going to, this isn't going to feel like Harpo. And it? I don't mm-hmm. like the face he's pulling mm-hmm. either when he walks on. Yeah, he, there's a few times he's mugging a little 
too much yeah, he sure for, for, is. for my yeah. taste. They are, yeah. And when he, when, he, when he flashes the badges, uh, when he's getting on the train, he's pushing yeah. it a little too much. Um, and we should point out that this film was done by a whole new creative team uh, for the Marxes. Uh, some of their old crew had, did contribute a few gags and a few things here and there, but this was basically credited to a whole new team, uh, including Irving Brecker, uh, who, you know, is the sole credited writer. And for anybody to take on the uh, Marx film as a sole writer is really asking for trouble. Well, he was a good gag man, wasn't he? He was a, a noted gag man with a track record. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I think he was a fine writer. I just think that he was a bit in over his head uh, doing this by himself. If he had been on the team and uh, doing A Night at the Opera or Monkey Business or whatever, I'm sure he would have contributed some great stuff, and I'd love to have him aboard. But, uh, you know, Marxists, we've been through this a million times. It needs to be a team effort. Do we know how, to what extent he was working alone? I mean, uh, clearly more help was needed, especially from good Marx Brothers writers. But I, I hear mixed things. Yeah, Ben Hecht, supposedly, it yeah. started with an outline by Hecht, and then right. Sheikman played some role, and I, I believe even a couple other gag writers. Or Sherry, if that's the correct pronunciation. I believe so. Yeah. But that just makes it more depressing. I mean, if, if Brecker had sole responsibility for every line of dialogue, we could say, well, what did you expect? If he really didn't work alone to that extent, then there's even less excuse for. I agree, the material isn't the biggest problem here, but it doesn't. It's it doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> and we should mention, of course, that Buster Keaton was brought in to contribute gags, but uh, after a very short time, it was uh, obvious to everyone involved that uh, their styles did not mesh, and he was uh, let go. Um, do we know if anything of his uh, remained in the film? Not no, that I know of. Mm -hmm. Adamson uh, describes a gag that wasn't used, but that Keaton supposedly mm. um, proposed, mm. involving, I believe, Harpo and a camel. Yeah, straw. Yeah. yeah. I think he wrote Two Blind Loves. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was more than enough, wasn't it? And uh, we are legally bound to mention the director, uh, Mr. Uh, <laughs> Edward Buzzell. Uh, how did he come to uh, direct this masterpiece? Well, they were old pals, weren't they? They were old. They went way back to vaudeville times together. Um, he had apparently dated Susan in in uh, in his early days, um, and and I think they you know they knew and respected each other. So there was that. Um, they probably didn't realise how firm a hand he was going to take, but it might explain why Groucho was was so strangely willing to defer to him. Yeah, still, it's a head scratching. Uh choice you know he i've looked at his resume he's a journeyman director nothing really of note on his resume um you know i'm sure he served mgm's purposes well but uh he didn't do much to help the marxes yeah he seems to have helmed a lot of lesser efforts by noteworthy artists and the circus setting probably didn't excite many people except for the uh marketing folks at mgm and perhaps some kids and as our friend Mr. Adamson so aptly put it, uh, I don't think he meant this literally, but figuratively, uh, I think he was right on. The Marxes belong in a circus, which is exactly the reason they shouldn't be put there. In defense of that idea, I, I would say that the, the the point of it is that they they bring the circus with them to another of Margaret Dumont's stuffy high society do's. So, so to that extent, it makes sense, but it's not developed properly. I get what you're saying, but that contrast and that conflict really isn't brought into the film until it's almost an hour in. And otherwise, you know, it's just 
too hard for the Marxists to cause much disruption in such a chaotic setting, you know, with giraffes and lions running around. Yeah, I think the circus to the Dukesbury Manor part of the movie is similar to the racetrack to the Standish Sanitarium mm-hmm. in Day at the Races. I mean, a racetrack isn't a, a place for the Marxists to bring disorder. Mm-hmm. And indeed, in the movie, that barely registers. The sanitarium is the place where they disrupt uh, propriety and, and et cetera. But it just doesn't come off that well in At the Circus. And Matthew in the Annotated asks whether the Marx Brothers really do belong in a circus to begin with, which I think is a question worth asking. Uh, People tend to think of comedians as clowns, uh, but those are distinct jobs. They really are. And uh, Harpo is clown-like in some ways. But, you know, could you imagine going to a three-ring circus and seeing a dead-on style parody of Eugene O'Neill's Strange Interlude. (laughs) It's just a very different kind of thing. And also other comedians did better. W.C. Fields and Chaplin both made circus movies where their characters did seem to fit in that context pretty well. It it did make sense. Yeah. In a way that it it just never does here. Well, that's because they're doing some sort of variation of normal people or slightly exaggerated normal people, whereas the Marxists are these otherworldly characters that uh, in no way can be contrasted to the circus people. Up to a point, yeah. But I mean, Groucho Groucho is playing a seedy lawyer who is uh, in some way helping out or hindering a business. It doesn't really register that it's a circus. You know, when he's on the train with them, that could be a theatre troupe going to a to a different theatre or, or anything, really. It's, it's only really Harpo's presence uh, in the Strongman Act and then, you know, at the finale that it really registers that it's that it's a circus as far as they're concerned, I think. Well, why don't we dive into this film? Um, well, actually, we have no choice. We're obligated to. Uh, we open on our uh, lovely MGM Leo the Lion and uh, go to some very generic, unexciting the, credits. The, the horrible stenciled lettering they always have as well. I really don't like that that look where it looks like yeah embossed sort of. Very heavy shadowing on those mm. uh, letters. Mm. Terrible. <laughs> we hate the typeface in the credits. Too much shadow. Too. <laughs> you call this a Marx Brothers movie? Yeah, an MGM opening is pretty much a death knell for any uh, hardcore comedy fan. It just brings to mind late in career, uh, our gang and Laurel and Hardy films, and it just turns everybody's stomach uh, when an MGM comedy comes on. You know, us Marx fans are actually sort of lucky that we got a couple of decent. Uh, films out of the studio. But we do have to give MGM credit for one thing. They did give us a nice uh, streamlined circus. For yes. Film. Uh, and streamlined. you go back and look at all the uh, the publicity for this film, it was highly touted that this was going to be a modern, streamlined circus, shiny circus. Made of chromium. And this was really going to add to the uh, quality of the film. Yeah. We come out of the credits and we see what appears to be a very uh, successful modern circus. Uh, Streamlight Circus, Wilson's Wonder Circus, uh, I guess is what it's named, a hell of a name, hell of a creative way to start this film. And we meet our our lovely couple, our hero and heroine, uh, Jeff Wilson and uh, Julie, uh, uh, what's her name? Randall. Randall, I think, or Randolph? Randall. Okay, uh, I guess you were paying more attention than I was. Um <laughs> uh, we learn right off the bat that Jeff has uh, seems to have given up a cushy lifestyle to run a circus. Uh, what do we think of our couple here? 
They're great. They're brilliant. I love them. Love them. Yeah. And the show that they put on is absolutely first class. I can't praise it enough. Kenny Baker. I mean, there's has there ever been a more potent figure of male virility on the screen is Never. my first question about him. And he's so aptly named. I mean, Kenny Baker. I mean, what else could he possibly be? I believe he might share a name with the person who played R2-D2 in the original Star ah. Wars. Ah. As many fans have pointed out, Kenny Baker is not always unbearable. Um, in the Jack Benny show, he um, he was the tenor, the house tenor on the Benny show for a while, and he wasn't without his charm. Um, he seems like a decent enough chap. I just the material and the parts he's given here. There's just nothing to it that you want to like. Yeah, and I maybe it's Bazell. I just as Bazell's direction seems to have influenced Groucho to be mm-hmm. far too cute and chipper. Um, Kenny Baker seems to have taken that same note to heart, and he had a, a shorter distance to travel than Groucho uh, in order to become unbearable in that regard. And so he's just got this whimpery Mickey Mouse voice. I, I think there's far too much of them before Groucho comes on as well. That's If Groucho had had oh, an yeah. earlier scene, oh, yeah. uh, you'd tolerate him a bit more. But it's because mm. you've had about 12 minutes of him before you even see Groucho. I think that's a, a big part of the problem. Right. Yeah. 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 After Jeff and Julie uh, set the stage for the uh, plot line, we're ready for some Prime Marks comedy. But nope, we're treated <laughs> to Julie singing a love song to a horse, apparently. <laughs> yeah. She seems to have better chemistry with than she has with uh, Kenny Baker. <laughs> so step up and take a bow. Yeah. It's yeah. truly n- not. A good song, and and it happens so early, and you think, God, if they're putting this right up front, what are we in for? Uh, it's almost unthinkable that Arlen and Harburg uh, wrote these these numbers. Step up and take a bow, as well as the eventual Two Blind Loves. Uh, these guys were just about as good as it gets in terms of songwriting during their era. Uh, often pointed out that together in the same year. Um, well, released the same year. They wrote the eternal songs in The Wizard of Oz. So they did this um, on their lunch break, apparently. They, they, they one out of three yeah. here. Yeah. Arlen, especially. Arlen was a master melodist, you know, maybe the greatest melodist on Broadway in this period. And uh, uh, it's astonishing that he, he was unable to come up with anything better. So in the middle of the song, we cut away, and Jeff's talking to a very young uh, Eve Arden, who's playing uh, Peerless Pauline. And, uh, hey, when you think about it, our friend Eddie Deason is uh, only one degree removed from the Marxes uh, here, (laughs) right? Ooh. Anyhow, Pauline is not impressed by the song. Wonderful, isn't she? Yeah, she's all right. But who ever heard of anyone singing with a horse act? Well, the audience likes it. Cue a chorus off. No, we don't. (laughs) If Pauline's supposed to be set up as the villain here by not liking the song, well, uh, count me aligned with the villain. because (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We might put Eve Arden on the list with Marilyn Monroe and maybe Ann Miller, people who might have been excellent foils for the Marx Brothers under better circumstances, but she actually worked with them in a, a pretty inferior vehicle, and it's too bad. She's fulfilling a role, isn't she, that that MGM have suddenly decided is is like an essential ingredient in their films and it probably goes back to um to Thelma Todd in Horse Feathers but it the, the kind of uh seductive villainess um so you have yeah. 
flow in um, a day at the races and then you also have uh, the, the woman in big store I can't remember her name but uh, the kind of the, the the attractive blonde friend of the villain she sort of she fulfills that role and she's probably the best of them actually um, but just let down by, by what she's well uh, Kay Francis even as far back as coconuts is a little bit of that mm. not blonde but the sort of femme fatale mm. role and we finally get a Mark sighting as the strongman Goliath enters the ring uh, with his sidekick assistant, uh, uh, Harpo. Um, for the third film in a row, Harpo has aligned himself with a villain who we, he ends up antagonizing and gets uh, abused. Uh, and the film, he gets some barbells thrown at him. I'm sure most people notice when they come in that they have identical hairstyles. And uh, uh, we all assume that there's going to be some sort of plot point or gag or something about them being mistaken for each other or something but nothing's ever made of it uh, uh was something cut here he's styled exactly as he is in the great Ziegfeld, isn't he so so he's i think he's meant to be kind of to some extent evoking that and then harpo coming on in the same costume is is meant to be uh meant to be funny but yeah it, it never struck me until about the millionth viewing that this was actually the same setup as the previous two you know harpo mm. being picked on by the villain but it's so underdeveloped that it completely passes you by uh, mm -hmm. and you basically just get that one awful special effect of him falling down the hole which they use again in go west don't they um right and and that's about it in place and of when i say third film in a row i meant third mgm film in a row yeah but the, he, he, you know he gets a, a severe beating in the other two but not here so it, you completely miss the point, I think. It, it, you don't notice it. Did you guys notice when they came in, there was that little gag where a lion roars at Harpo, and there's mm. a little uh, lion head on Harpo's costume right at his crotch that, like, rises up and yeah. <laughs> yeah. roars back or something? What the hell is going on there? <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, there must be some way I can wear that pelt without getting in trouble with the Hayes office. <laughs> now we meet uh, uh, Chico. What's his name here? Tony? Mm. Yeah, Antonio. Yeah, okay. Where's Mr. Carter? Mr. Carter. Hello, Joe. What's new? Don't tell me now. I got no time. I got to find a Mr. Carter. Hello, Nick. How's the wife? Tell me later. I'm in the hurry. I got to find a Mr. Carter. Hello, Sam. And that's all. It's a nice little moment. It's a little character moment for him that he doesn't get too often. Sort of a nice little hint what he might have been as a character actor. Hello, Sam. And that's all. Especially when you compare it with <laughs> his intro in The Day of the Races where he's just saying, you know, free bus, free bus, and nobody wants a bus, and, right. he's, and he's just doing pathos. He's, he's, he's got a joke here, which is he's asking people questions and then not letting them answer. So it's a, it's a big step up, and, then, you know, unfortunately, uh, it's pretty much where his, his uh, comedy involvement ends, but it's a, good, it's a good start. Yeah. And he's looking for uh, Mr. Carter. I get, you know, we have to sort of piece together what's going on here. Um, eventually, it becomes clear that, Mr. Carter has helped uh, Jeff financially with the uh, circus, and Jeff and Jeff owes him some money. And unless Jeff pays him back right away, Carter's going to just take it over for himself. And uh, we learn that we're not supposed to like this guy because he's telling Chico to shut up a couple of times. So it's <laughs> not exactly uh, subtle that uh, we're supposed it's to side against yeah. him. Is Carter whittling or something in that scene? What is he doing? He has like it's something. Like, yeah, in his, yeah, he's got yeah, something in his is. hand, and he's kind of cutting it with a knife. Yeah, an interesting directorial decision there. Yeah, you you expect by the end of the scene for him to have carved a, a little pipe or <laughs> something. It's the sort of thing you expect Zeppo to be doing, isn't it? Just keep his hands busy. And once again, Chico has been used as 
the plot mover uh, within the brothers here is he's the one who suggested Jeff that he get a lawyer because he's in some financial trouble. Yeah. Um, this mm-hmm. is similar to what he's done uh, the previous two MGM films. Yeah. I think when he says, I ain't got nothing, but you can always have half. In the hands of a, a different writing team, that does feel like the seed of what could have been a good Marx Brothers joke. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of those in the movie. It's better than, uh, you, you You don't have to pay me, but you can't fire me, which is the equivalent line in, in Racist. Yes. So it is It is still a step up. Absolutely. Oh, Jeff. He's in plenty trouble. <laughs> I don't know why I just thought I'd play that. Uh, some prime Chico. Anyhow, next thing you know, Chico has taken it upon himself to get Jeff a lawyer. So we see him at the telegraph office, sending out a telegram. Uh, not much to talk about here. He gets into a hassle with the guy over a few cents. But uh, the reason I bring this scene up is because it was the focus of a little incident I was on. I was in online a few years ago. Uh, there was a guy I came across who claimed that there was a joke in this scene that has been cut out of all recent versions of the film. Um, it has something to do with a ring. I'm not going to go any further because I don't want to plant any seeds or any memories. I want to see whether anybody else remembers this. But this guy claims that it, ever since the DVDs came out that this joke has been taken out. But I've checked the earlier versions. I've checked uh, VHS copies and laser discs. I've had people go back and look at film copies. And this joke is nowhere to be seen. Still, I'm not going to totally dismiss this guy because we didn't know a version of Room Service existed with a different song until... Uh, somewhat recently. So you just never say never. But if anybody knows of this joke, uh, which I'm very skeptical of, uh, please, please contact us. But uh, I'm dubious, uh, to say the least. <laughs> just thought I'd relate that story. Um, it is in an Abbott and Costello film. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it is an existing joke. And it's, it's not, a, not an awful joke, but it just doesn't exist oh. in this film. I would like to note that um, when Chico pulls out his little black book, his address book, um, yeah. the J. Cheever loophole, Groucho's character, is in Chico's book under trouble mm-hmm. um, with no contact information, um, which connects him with the detective agency in the big store, <laughs> which is similarly hard to get in touch with. <laughs> so we're all ready to meet Loophole, uh, sort of like the way we met Hackenbush at the beginning of A Day at the Races, uh, hard at work. Um, but we do not because... The scene originally intended for here, a scene that was actually shot, was cut out of the film before it was even released. Uh, It never existed in a finished version of the film. Uh, Nobody's ever seen it. However, a couple of stills have turned up uh, here and there. You could probably find them online. And the script for the scene has also survived. So we do have an idea of what it was supposed to be. And you know what? We decided we're going to take it upon ourselves to do the first ever live performance of this scene. For you, yes, our lucky viewers, our listeners, or unlucky hey. listeners, or whatever you are. <laughs> so sit back, uh, open up a beverage, uh, <clears throat> do what you need to do, and let me get ready here. You guys are excited about this? Yep. We're excited. The audience is long gone. <laughs> We're excited. More at the circus, just what you've always wanted. <laughs> okay. A close shot of the judge on his bench. We've had too much delay in this trial. Now then, where's the plaintiff's attorney? A wider angle takes in the judge, the court clerk, and the plaintiff. The plaintiff is a very statuesque blonde wearing a veil and revealing an attractive pair of legs. She is seated in the witness chair. The court clerk rises. Is the attorney for the plaintiff in the court? 
Attorney J. Cheever Loophole, Attorney Loophole, Mr. Loophole. Pan the jury box. Chin in hands sits lawyer Groucho. He's catnapping. The noise awakens him. He leaps to his feet and whirls on the jury with a dramatic plea. Gentlemen of the jury, I implore you to face the facts. This is a simple case of... Groucho stops and looks at the judge. The defendant's attorney jumps up. This is highly irregular. Why is the attorney for the plaintiff sitting with the jury? I'd rather have the state owe me three bucks a day than the plaintiff. Groucho steps out of the jury box and stalks over to a frightened little man who sits on the defendant's table. Groucho points an accusing finger at him. I intend to prove that this monster, with his silken words and cotton suit, did willfully and with malice aforethought promise that he would marry this little child, this delicate flower. Gentlemen, this girl believed that man. She trusted him. Ain't that a woman for you? Gentlemen, to me a woman has always been something to revere. My mother was a woman. Granddaughter to Paul Revere. But that's a horse of another story. The defendant's attorney leaps to his feet, waving a few shabby pieces of paper and shouting, Your Honor, the plaintiff's counsel has introduced no evidence other than this affidavit with half the pages missing. Well, affidavit is better than none. He has not succeeded in proving even one of his allegations, and I move that you dismiss the case. How do you like that guy? The first case I've had in nine years, and he wants to dismiss it. Silence. Yeah, pipe down. (laughs) There's not even one scrap of evidence to show that my client here was ever even seen with this woman. And yet she sues him for breach of promise. Has the plaintiff any further evidence? Any further evidence? Only my trump card, that's all. If it please the court, I should like to call Detective Nicholas Bludge to the stand. Shot toward the courtroom audience... In the second or third row rises a burly man, while off-screen we hear the clerk's voice. Detective Nicholas Bludge! Here. Groucho struts around triumphantly, then turns to the opposing counsel. You want evidence, eh? Bounder! The detective takes the stand. Mr. Bludge, on the night of November 27th, did you, or did you not, see this little lady with a certain despicable playboy? Well... No evasions, please. Remember, the future happiness of several human lives depends on your testimony here. Now, uh, tell the court, tell the jury, tell the whole world. Who is that man? Uh, you. Me? Medium shot on the principles. We hear the hubbub of the courtroom. Groucho scurries over to the woman in the case and quickly lifts her veil. He's amazed to recognize her. Valerie! Your Honor, I move for an adjournment. Groucho walks rapidly towards the door, the camera trucking with him. And I'm going to keep moving. The corridor outside the courtroom. As Groucho darts out, slamming the door behind him, he's confronted by a quartet of postal telegraph boys. Groucho, terrified, mistakes them for... The National Guard. Mr. Loophole. Yes, but I've got an alibi. I didn't do it. Postal telegraph message number number 1136. 1136. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Come, Come quickly, quickly to Luxton, or the circus is through. Signed, Antonio. They hand him a wire, and the truth dawns on Groucho. He brightens. Don't wait for an answer. I'll sing it to him myself. The scene fades out as Groucho heads for the door. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> It's just obvious that they cut this because no scene after it could live up to the hilarity and the rest of the film would just be a all let down. <laughs> um, have you ever heard of Luxton? Is it a real place? Oh, that's a question. Hey, Siri, what state is Luxton in? 
The answer I found is Kentucky. Not Lexington. Oh, fuck Siri. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. It's uh, not a classic piece of comedy, but it's not awful either. I guess it's about on par with the rest of the film. So I, I don't think it was cut for quality reasons. I think it was cut for time reasons. Um, you know, this was the era where double features were really, really uh, becoming prominent. So taking this scene out gets it under 90 minutes. Um, you know, it really wasn't important plot-wise. It was just a, it was just a character piece. So uh, it was the first to go. And they didn't want to drop those love songs. <laughs> I know. You could have had that scene and, and cut step up and take a bow. But I think, you know, even if it had been in the movie, I think we would, you know, we would take for granted its existence and we would feel it was a giant missed opportunity. You have Groucho, you know, playing lawyer in court. I mean, that is the premise for what should be a killer comedy scene. And yeah. It's certainly not that. And of course, we saw hints of this in Duck Soup, uh, what it could be with Groucho questioning Chico on the witness stand. Uh, too bad we couldn't get more of that stuff. Yeah, and Flywheel, Shyster and Flywheel, um, you know. Yeah. yeah, it should have been. I mean, this maybe of everything in the movie or almost in the movie, it should have that, that should have been our, our great scene. And by the way, the fact that uh, it was going to be a double feature is probably the reason that the, the title was changed from A Day at the Circus to At the Circus, because they, they, they were trying to save a marquee space. It is often referred to as a day at the circus or the Marx Brothers at the at circus. The circus. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's advertised that way uh, often overseas, but I'd be surprised if there's ever a title card that yeah. says that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So back to the film, we see the train loading and getting ready to take the circus to its next uh, destination. Uh, Julie's in the coffee shop reading a paper about how Jeff's Aunt Susanna Dukesbury is disinheriting Jeff for running the circus. Uh, we see that uh, Miss Dukesbury is obviously a, uh, Margaret Dumont, but we're not going to meet her for quite a while yet. But we see, we know what's coming. The actual line in the paper, if you could see, is Jeffrey Wilson, nephew of prominent New York socialite Mrs. Susanna Dukesbury, is broke today! Exclamation <laughs> point. And this is, you know, uh, this is big news in the paper. Uh, and then, and then it says her name again, which is great. His aunt, Miss Susanna Dukesbury. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a good story. Yeah, uh, obvious. Once again, Hitler's rise to power is being ignored by the mainstream press. <laughs> <laughs> and the other great thing is, is the title of the piece is Jeff Wilson gives up greenbacks for barebacks, but the actual story makes no mention at all of the circus. It just says that he's been disinherited. <laughs> it gives no indication of what the, the barebacks are. Uh, Jeff and Julie start discussing things, and then comes uh, one of my favorite moments in the film. I have to play this for you. Now the only thing standing in the way of our getting married is you. I don't know why I let you keep on stalling me. Must be crazy. I ought to see a doctor. Hey, get me a doctor. What's the matter? You ain't tasted it yet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For some reason, that that, that exchange is... (laughs) I just love that exchange. That just screams MGM, Marx Brothers, for me. So we're still we're still having met Groucho, but before we do, guess what? We're getting another song, and yes. not just another song. Two Blind Loves. Yeah, we're not even twelve minutes into the movie, and we've gotten both <laughs> of the unbearable songs. I, I also really think that there's something about. I mean, on this podcast, we're in the habit of defending the songs, always for good reasons. But if mm-hmm. if you can't see the difference between Why Am I So Romantic and Animal Crackers and Two Blind Loves and At the Circus. You're not really listening. You know, or even alone. 
Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It doesn't have to be a, a cute song. It just has to be a good song. Yes. Know? I can't imagine Harold Arlen and Yip Harburg, even on a tight deadline, I can't imagine them saying, let's take three blind mice <laughs> mm-hmm. and turn it into a song for these two. And the scene is punctuated by the two of them walking into a door on their way out of the diner. Yeah. Now, uh, 12 and a half minutes in the film, we finally get to meet Groucho. Mm. You know, this is a scene that we talked about a few episodes back in our Groucho Chico tribute, but there's still a lot going on here to unpack. Uh, we should probably start by saying that this is uh, this is the moment that supposedly uh, features um, Harpo doubling for Chico. Um, at the first, the first shot of them piling onto the train, according to um, publicity that was re- released at the time, um, Harpo stood in for Chico, and and even Bazell didn't notice. And and some a lot of the reports challenge you to to spot him, and, and I challenge you too. It's it's clearly not the case, but I guess I guess we should mention that uh, th- that was claimed. And it uh, also seems as though somebody standing in for Groucho as well. So there's a yes. lot going on. <laughs> you know? It's so noticeably different than how he's ever portrayed the character before. You know, he's always been surly and measured, but you know this this guy here is peppy and cheerful, and he's got it. Like I said, he's got the shit-eating grin through about yeah. almost every scene in this film, and it makes me want to puke. Uh, yeah. you, know, you almost get the impression as though Julius had a stroke or something and forgot <laughs> how to play Groucho. You know, it's like he's never played the character before. What I think we're getting here really is is a radio performance on film because radio has 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 by this time kind of taken over from from films as 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 where comedy's at. Um, all, all the big comedy stars now are the radio stars, and we know that Groucho really wanted to be a be a radio star. So what I what I think you're seeing is a radio type of performance, which is much broader because the radio doesn't have the visual element. Um, it's very much like Bob Hope. There's a lot of um, jokes where Groucho is momentarily cocky and then when he's challenged he immediately becomes a coward which is a which is an absolutely key Bob Hope uh, style um, so you're getting you're getting basically radio comedy brought back to to film with all of its um, broadness yeah it, it seems to have something in common with um, lesser impersonations of Groucho in that all of the basic equipment is there, um, but it's all being sort of misapplied uh, in very superficial ways. And there's an over-reliance on, on the superficial details of what the eyebrows do and, and what the voice does, but it's all pitched way too high. It's dialed up to a manic level. Partly it can be attributed, I think, to a lack of faith in the material. But in Day at the Races, he had a lot of substandard material too and he delivered it in a groucho style i um we we read a pertinent excerpt from adamson earlier this episode i want to read this little bit from from you matthew from the annotated marx brothers chapter on at the circus uh this is what matthew conium says i think this is exactly it In the earlier films, his pacing is actually very deliberate, his intonation level and his body language very controlled. Though the overall impression is one of anarchy, the man himself is enigmatic, and his delivery is measured, the whole a kind of parody of gentility, and the point that you don't necessarily get the measure of Groucho right away. 
and that, that's it. Uh, he's he's cast aside all of that subtlety, and yeah. thereby what was satirical about his character has been subsumed into what might more accurately dis- be described as clowning. He's mm-hmm. clowning. You know, a lot of people talk about how different the Marxes are in, in room surface, about how they've changed from their previous, mm-hmm. you know, uh, characterization. But if you ask me, gr- the Groucho of at the circus is a lot more different yeah. than his old self than the room service Groucho is. Uh, that's just my opinion. And one more technical point about the scene that uh, I've just noticed the last few times I've watched it. All the audio, all the dialogue in the scene has been re-recorded uh, in the studio. None of the audio is 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 live. You could hear in the ambience an actual echo in their voices. If you look closely, their their lips do not match what they're saying. So this has been all been re-recorded. I think the rain was just too heavy, and it, it affected the audio when they were on the set. Uh, actually, there is about one second of real audio in here um, at the very top of the scene when Chico is letting uh, little Professor Adam on on board, and he asked uh, Professor Adam for his ID, and you could hear one slight moment of uh, heavy rain, and you could tell just how bad it is. Hey, where's your badge? Okay, Professor, where's your? So you could see possibly what they had to deal with and why they had to re-record it all. But uh, just thought I'd throw that in. Uh, why even bother to make it rain in this scene? Yeah. It's, it's, I guess it's supposed to emphasize how pathetic it is that Groucho can't get on the train, but it winds up making everything, it make, takes something bad and makes it worse. And if this scene had just taken place in ghostly silence, like the Tootsie Fritzy scene, you know, at least we would be able to think of it in terms of mediocre dialogue and, and below par performances. MGM was probably like, uh, I see you have him going into a puddle. But why is there a puddle there? Well, okay, we'll put a rainstorm in to justify the puddle. Yeah, it's just to make it even more terrible that he's stuck outside. It's defeating the purpose, too. It it makes it less funny, and uh, it makes it harder for this to get through the scene. It feels like much more of an ordeal to have to watch Groucho, you know, kicking around in a puddle than it would be to just watch these two guys get through a subpar comedy scene. Uh, it's also, I don't know about you guys, but I, even though I know it's not going to happen, it just makes me anxious to see Groucho in the rain with a grease paint makeup. And I, <laughs> I, every time I half expect it to just come melting off his face. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get into the meat of the scene a little, because I think maybe somebody might be interested in that part of it. Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> it seems like Brecker was really trying to emulate the great Groucho Chico uh, encounters of the past, but he, you know, he misses the mark because Chico's uh, flights of illogic have always had a purpose, at least a self-serving purpose, uh, in the past. But here, it's the exact opposite. He he's the one who who called uh, Groucho, and he's the one not letting him on the train. So it's not serving him at all. Yes, yes, it's like somebody watched the password scene in Horse Feathers and didn't quite get it. There's something about the essence of the idea that Chico gives Groucho his badge and then rejects him because that badge is not valid. Uh, There's the germ of a decent Marx Brothers idea in there, but the execution is so off. Mm -hmm. We should also note that, for whatever reason, this was basically the last Groucho-Chico extended scene done of the Silk. You know, it had been bread and butter of the act since day one. And in the future, they would have little short exchanges, but nothing extended like this. I don't know 
Maybe they just thought, oh, this is too tough to execute. I, I have no idea why they would just stop even trying to do these types of scenes, even if this one didn't work exactly. That's a good point. I, I guess you could say that the opening scene of Go West is a Groucho and Chico scene plus Harpo. But it's true. As far as the pure Groucho-Chico duologues, this is it, isn't it? And it's mm. a fairly ignominious end. And as the scene ends, uh, of course, uh, Groucho gets thrown into the puddle one more time and his hat flies off to reveal something on top of his head. Uh, a new cast member, a new member of the Mark's troupe. Uh, the infamous toupee, which uh, is getting a lot of uh, discussion online in our uh, Facebook group. Uh, some people think that we make too much of a big deal about this thing. You know, it really isn't that big of a deal. But the, the, the fact that it's being brought in Midway through the Marxist career, as a point of vanity for, for Groucho, it just seems strange. You know, people say, well, Chico had a wig. Well, Chico had a wig before they even started uh, making movies. And, you know, it was basically part of his character. It wasn't somebody's decision like, hey, Chico's going bald. We need, we need to address that. Yeah, and I think it's part of of all the other big changes as, as well. If it was just if it was just the one thing, if it was just that wig in in a night at the opera or something, I think we it would still be regrettable. But we you know we'd accommodate it somehow. But it's when it's it's matched with the that strange new performance style and the extreme sort of physicality of his uh, him leaping about. It just seems to be very much of a piece with all those other changes. And and uh, you know and 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 we should stress that the problem with it isn't the fact that it's a wig. It's it, it's the fact that it's. Um, a wig that has been sort of seemingly, uh, you know, thrust on him by the studio, um, and which therefore goes against the kind of anti-pretentiousness of his character. And I think we're safe in saying that this was MGM's or Bazell's call because there are no other uh, shots or film clips of him wearing the toupee uh, during this era, other than these two films. Yeah, I guess it's worth noting in light of some of the um, responses to this criticism, we're not, it's not that we're accusing Groucho of personal vanity, of wanting to wear a wig to somehow hide the fact that he's, his hair is thinning. Um, it's that it's, it's wrong for his character. And I, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, Matthew. If he sounded like Groucho and acted like Groucho, then maybe it would be easier to forgive the fact that he doesn't look like Groucho. But in combination, all of this makes us wonder, would, would we enjoy this more if Groucho were in it? <laughs> and he does look different, doesn't he? It's not just the wig. There is something about his face. I, I can't work out what it is, but... Right. I, I think the mustache and eyebrows are smaller and also lighter. It, it looks in many scenes in this film that his mustache has been maybe powdered with too much white powder or something. It's kind of gray and it's smaller too on his face. That's part of it. Uh, yes, it's a, it's a very strange non-Groucho performance. I think his face looks thinner. Yeah. And obviously we're so much more cognizant of Groucho's, you know, year to year appearance than people were back in the thirties, you know, back then people only saw him for 90 minutes every year or so. So they weren't really aware or thinking about how much balder he is or if he's grayer or anything. Uh, but now, you know, we see a thousand pictures of him every day online and see the films all the time, back to back clips, montages. So we see him age, we see him get younger. So it's a lot different now. People just, it wasn't uh, in their heads back then. 
Yeah, all the movies are equally fresh in our minds. So it's absurd that in Animal Crackers, he has this gray streaked wild hair that could only be growing out of a human head. And now he has this jet black sort of beret looking thing. I was wondering, you know, we've all made note that this is the same year that MGM made a superior film, The Wizard of Oz. I wonder if the dog who played Toto just landed on Groucho's head at some point on the lot. <laughs> One thing I did notice, though, I don't know if you spotted this, is it does, the wig actually changes from its first scene to its second scene. It Either it's a separate mm. wig or it's had a lot of work done on it in between times. When he's in the carriage... Uh, when he's he can't decide if his coat is inhabited or he's inhibited. It's very flat. It's kind of scraped down. And then when he moves into the other carriage to start singing Lydia, it's been totally boofed. It's It's got these sort of Marcel waves in it. It, it, it looks like a completely mm-hmm. different wig. So there's a, there are actually two. Either there are two wigs or, or it's been really... Uh, I up. noticed that. I I was wondering if it had something to do with the hat that he's wearing. Sometimes the hat kind of mushes down the wig, and then it has to be touched up. Mm. Mm. Well, anyhow, as uh, we leave the scene, Groucho is being denied entry onto the train, so we have to assume he didn't get on the train. So we move on, and Groucho's apparently been left back at the station. And the train's on its <laughs> way, and next we're, we're in, we see a Chico very early on having a, a mm. piano solo singing to a bunch of babes mm. in the uh, club car. What's he playing, the, the beer barrel polka? is playing checkers uh, with someone yeah. uh, with the help of a seal. I don't think it's a seal from horse feathers, but in typical MGM fashion, the seal's help causes Harpo to lose the game. Yeah. And uh, to make matters even worse, this causes Jeff and Julie to start laughing at Harpo. <laughs> Come on. This, this is not a good understanding of the Harpo character. Yeah, there's something about the forced, spontaneous, sudden unison laughter of of Florence Rice and Kenny Baker in a in a movie where there is so much less of the sound of our own laughter. Mm-hmm. It's depressing. Then it's revealed that Loophole did get on the train after all. Somehow, he has his own uh, little office cabin there, and Chico has, I guess, set him up with a magician suit because his other stuff got so wet. Is that what's going on? Chico's put. Got him some new clothes. Yeah. He, and just in this one scene, elsewhere in the film, Grouch is wearing the usual swallowtail coat. But for Lydia, he has this different long black coat. Um, and yeah, the gag is that it's a magician's coat. And that's why he's always pulling bouquets of flowers out of it and rabbits. Mm-hmm. It's actually, I, it may be a coincidence, but there was a deleted gag in Duck Soup. Um, in the early mm-hmm. screenplays of Duck Soup, yeah. Groucho was supposed to pull a white rabbit out of his coat. Uh, upon virtually every entrance, um, and it is a it does illustrate the the cleavage between Paramount and MGM. At, at Paramount, this was just going to be a purely surreal gag, r- always pulling a rabbit out of his coat. But now we've got this whole backstory. It was a magician's mm. coat. That's why it's <laughs> happening. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's it's a lot weaker, you know. 
Wait, I've never heard the word cleavage used in that context. <laughs> well, it's a it's a decolletage <laughs> subject, Bob. I realize <laughs> cleavage, you know, separation, uh, breakage. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so presumably, there is missing material here, isn't there? I imagine at some point it would have been made clear that he he was let on the train, and presumably was given a you know to take off his wet coat, and he was given a magician's coat. I imagine that got lost in a in a cut somewhere. Yeah, that would make sense. It winds up being, I mean, the coat doesn't really bother me that much, but it's like, why? Mm. We're going to do another, we're going to make another revision to Groucho's classic look. Mm. Uh, it's like kicking him while he's down. And the reason I bring this up about Groucho getting on the train isn't because it bothers me so much. I'm not that picky. It's a Marx Brothers film, you know? Um, but it's just strange because MGM usually prides itself in, in you know, making these nice linear, uh, logical films. And this is, seems to have, uh, slip through the cracks this one moment because uh, so many other things that people don't really worry about, they seem to have their finger on. Yeah. It's um, uh, to expand on a Joe Adamson point. It, it's not, it's not theoretically different from duck soup where Groucho's in the sidecar and Harpo goes ahead without him, but Groucho manages to wind up where they were going anyway. Right, um, right. But that seems like inspired absurdism. Uh, whereas here, it just seems like they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> and then Chico brings Groucho through the train to look for Jeff, and they end up in the club car. And we are then treated to the wonderful Lydia, the tattooed lady. And uh, I say wonderful because that's what everybody tells me it is. Um, <laughs> no, seriously, I'm, I'm. it's a good enough song. I like it well enough, but I'm not the biggest fan. Uh, a lot of people say it's the highlight of the film for them, but I think that's more an indictment of the rest of the film than it is a compliment to the song. Uh, like I said, it's it's fine enough. It just seems a little seems a little too cute for me. It doesn't have the bite of the Groucho songs that I really like. Uh, I always said that this seems like something more uh, suited for Danny Kaye, but uh, it's it's good. It's 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 uh, it's joyful. But uh, that's another problem. It's maybe just a little too joyful. Um, everybody seems to be having such a good time. I think what this uh, number really needs, maybe uh, it was the way it was directed. I wish somebody was somewhat offended by uh, Groucho's explicit uh, description of, of Lydia. You know, remember back in Duck Soup when he's explaining about whatever it is, I'm against it, and all these uh, old farts are like, hmm, I don't know. You know, I think we needed something like that uh, to spice this number up, to, to give it a little flavor that the joyous sing-along doesn't give. But uh, like I said, if you enjoy the song, so be it. It's very cute, and we don't normally associate a Groucho song with with cute. Um, there are some, you know, it's a it's a very well written song. There's some great lines, some very clever rhymes, some very good, you know, structuring of the of the piece. But it it is unusually whimsical for for a Groucho mm. number. Um, yeah, I mean, Chico should have sung it at the piano, as you've often said, Bob. There's something about um, the the return of the Groucho specialty number that is so welcome, um, even in opera and races, as we know, we, we didn't get that. And so it feels on one hand like something being done right in a movie where there are so many choices that seem wrong. Uh, however, I partly under your influence, Bob, I... I I do think you make an excellent point. It is much more like a Danny Kaye or Eddie Cantor novelty song. Um, it, it doesn't completely fit. It certainly doesn't fit the template of other Groucho numbers. 
Um, uh, and although it is ultimately, I think, a winning scene, I, I do like it, and it is a, an oasis in this movie. I think it's also just undeniably true that all the same problems that haunt Groucho's presence in this movie are true here, too. He is being far too cute and manic in his performance. He does have that thing on his head. Um, I mean, I wonder what it would be like to see the normal Groucho do this on film. Um, and then another perspective on it, you know, I, I, I've, I've gotten this other perspective on Lydia from performing it, which, uh, you know, I've performed it a lot in, in, in theater contexts, in nightclub or cabaret kinds of settings. And a very interesting thing happens with this song. First of all, it's incredibly well known. It's far more well known than the movie it's from. Um, and I know it's popped up in other places like The Muppet Show and The Fisher King and The Philadelphia Story. But I'm not sure that really explains why an audience that is only passingly familiar with with Groucho, as soon as they know you're about to do that song, it gets a very warm reception. People love singing along with the la-la-las. And then as the song proceeds, it, it starts, there's a sense of diminishing returns. Um, <laughs> because like a lot of clever list songs. That's what it is. It's a list song, you know? And so it, it, it's a one joke kind of song. It just proceeds joke by joke, rhyme by rhyme, and everything in it has to top the thing before it because there's nothing else pulling you through. It's only three minutes, but it, it feels like a longer song than it is. And by the mm. end, I think there's a sense of relief that it's over. Um, I'm not, it is very clever. It's two of the greatest songwriters, of course, but yeah, I, I, I still love it, but my attitude toward it has dimmed somewhat. There's, uh, incidentally, on YouTube, you can find a performance where I screw up the lyrics and make a bit out of it. It's uh, embarrassing, but funny. I think the most interesting song to compare it to in terms of his performance isn't one of the Paramount ones. It's uh, Sing While mm. You Sell from the big store because that's much more uh in the lydia mold it's another cutesy song it's an mgm song um but if you actually compare and, and it's a vastly inferior song of course nobody in a million years would say it's a better song but if you actually compare the way he the way he performs it with the way he performs lydia you get a very clear sense of what's going on in at the circus i think the just the the extremely heightened manic way he does virtually everything in this film um is is very much to the fore in Lydia. I do like Harpo bopping around and Chico joining in, and the three of them having a good time uh, performing a number. You know, we don't get that too often. Uh, uh, Duck Soup, uh, yeah, maybe one or two <laughs> others, but like it, it is, it is nice to see. And that the um, Captain Spaulding reference is a meta moment, unlike any other in the canon, and that that is something special come along and see buffalo bill with his lasso just a little classic by mendel picasso here is captain spaulding exploring the amazon here's godiva but with her pajamas on yes that's really something yeah now do you do you think chico is actually playing piano on the recorded song that we hear i'd be surprised I, it seemed to me that it was possible we were actually hearing Chico's piano on just the little intro. She was the most glorious creature under the sun. Thais! Dubari! Gabo! Rolled into one. 
because it, if you watch, it seems kind of improvised behind Groucho, but uh, elsewhere in the song, I guess it's unlikely. And there was another version of the song which included a lyrics uh, alluding to Hitler, which uh, obviously did not make it to the MGM screen. Although somebody on IMDb does claim that there is a version of the film that was shown overseas with those Hitler lyrics, but uh, I, I don't believe that for a second. I'd have to be shown it to believe it. Uh, the, the couplet is, when she stands, the world gets littler. When she sits, she sits on Hitler, um, which is a decent couplet. But yes, I would not have expected it to be heard in theaters in 1939. Uh, it is a, that is a good and somewhat yeah. common rhyme uh, in a song cut from Follies called Can That Boy Foxtrot? Stephen Sondheim uh, refers to a young man as an imitation Hitler and with Littler charm. <laughs> and I think there's a few others. I can't believe, I, I can't imagine Mel Brooks hasn't gotten near that rhyme at some point, although I can't think of an <laughs> example. I mean, it's worth remembering that there was a, a general blanket prohibition on um, mentioning any foreign leader by name in, in any context. Uh, it's not just, you know, particular sensitivity with regards to Hitler. I mean, it was just something that was generally not done in Hollywood movies at that time and was, was frowned upon and, and would have been, would have been taken out at the script stage if it was ever there at the script stage. So uh, I can't imagine it being specially filmed for, for an overseas audience. That, that, that makes no sense to me mm -hmm. at all. Yeah, I guess it, it's easy to imagine Harburg coming up with that and and maybe arguing for it half-heartedly, knowing that there was no way it was it was getting in. Now, Harburg, besides being a great lyricist, was this very socially conscious artist, and um, that was sort of his innovation, sneaking um, social and political messages into uh, Broadway musicals before it was... Uh, commonly done in shows like bloomer girl and um so it's easy to imagine that lyric coming from a, a delighted harburg move on to the next scene of note uh, we see jeff um uh, in gibraltar's cage pulling out the money a hundred thousand ten thousand hours and counting it all and professor adam and goliath sneak in the room <laughs> sneak in behind them and knock them out and i guess this this entire uh, robbery uh is based on the premise that Jeff is not going to turn around before he gets knocked out. And it takes quite a while. It's, it's, a, it's not really well executed, but whatever. <laughs> so he gets knocked out and they take his money and the brothers come in and find an unconscious Jeff and, uh, you know, show maybe a little too much concern for his well-being, if you ask me. Um, Groucho <laughs> takes Jeff to get looked at and Chico and Harpo stay back and have a nice little bit where they redestruct the crime. And there's some Nice little things in here. That's um, not bad, yeah. And it's probably just as well that Groucho is gone. It's it's very unfortunate that the the good bits in this movie tend to be the ones where where Groucho isn't isn't there. It's a great pity. Um, similarly, the the bit where they they search the strongman's room. If Groucho had been there, if he'd mm. been stood there cracking jokes while they were doing it, it would have probably killed that scene. Yeah, it's a great pity, but it it is it is the case in this film. Yeah. Um, at one point in this sequence, Chico has a line. I'd better break in this case before you break in my head. Shouldn't it be crack this case? Isn't that just a miswritten <laughs> line? I better crack this case before you crack my head. I mean, it's not a great joke, but it's a joke. Yep. Come on, Brecker. <laughs> I do like uh, Harpo. Harpo's uh, wanted for jaywalking poster. I like that, too. You see, crime doesn't pay. <laughs> 
We now cut to Groucho and Julie attending to Jeff in bed. Uh, well, maybe I should rephrase that. They're they're, they're making <laughs> they're, they're making they're making sure he feels he feels good. There's a cleavage there. I feel. Yeah, yeah. Jeff is actually you know Jeff is like very concerned and understandably freaking out about his money. Oh, oh, oh no, you don't. Oh, but I've got. Oh to- no, there's no use talking, Jeff. Money or no money, you're not going to get up. But you don't understand. If that thief gets away with that $10,000, I lose everything. Sorry, but there's nothing you can do about it now. You've got to get some sleep. Then in the morning, you'll feel a lot better. Yes, and a lot poorer. Does it matter? <laughs> Does it matter? <laughs> well, he has he has swapped greenbacks for barebacks, don't forget. <laughs> and he's like, don't you understand, Julie? I have to feel like a man. I'm a man. I don't want to be Mr. Julie. I want to be Mr. Jeff. <laughs> you sound like Mr. Bill. <laughs> then to move the plot along they somehow make uh chico is like the new colombo because he he somehow (laughs) jumped to the conclusion that carter wanted the money for himself but didn't have the nerve to actually knock jeff out and had goliath do it for him i mean what a what a jump by by chico here he asks himself what do you think colombo do Yeah, it's a very different uh, crime reconstruction from his one in Animal Crackers, oh, yeah. isn't it? He has he has come yeah. on in leaps and bounds. Yeah. So Chico and Groucho uh, go to Goliath's room, and why does Groucho take off his glasses here? I don't understand that. To make himself look even worse. Or it's like, you, yeah, I don't know. It's because Bob Hope doesn't wear glasses. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Wait a minute. Why? Why are these on my face? I'm Bob Hope. <laughs> <laughs> Chico directly confronts Goliath and asks him why he stole the money, and they obviously get chased out of there, running for their lives. And at this point, uh, Loophole has had enough, and he's ready to quit the case and go home, uh, which is fine as far as I'm concerned. But he runs into Julie at the back of the train, and she convinces him to stay. She pours his heart out to him, and Groucho changes his mind and decides to stay. And if you weren't sure before, you are now aware that this is a lousy movie. <laughs> and this is also the scene, isn't it, where he gets scared by Julie approaching and by the, the train whistle. Yeah, yeah. It's here. That's here, isn't it? That's Groucho. Yeah. <laughs> Harpo finally reveals that he's picked up a cigar at the crime scene, and Chico, once again, figures out it must be Professor Adams. I mean, this guy's really Sherlock Holmes. And... uh they, they go to Professor Adams' quarters and try and uh, get him to confirm this by having him pull out a similar cigar. What do, what do you guys think of this uh, scene in the <laughs> room? There's a lot, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of problems with it, but there are some laughs too. So it's hard to it's hard to really just throw away and criticize because there are a few laughs, but there are a bunch of problems M- also. My feeling is that I completely understand everything that's been said about it i understand all the criticisms i agree with all the criticisms but this is pretty much the one scene in the film that i i really loved when i used to have a very different view of the film Mm. that still even now when i watch it i i i enjoy i appreciate that it's very very basic that chico is behaving in a in a a kind of diluted way um but just just the way he keeps saying hey i just got a one more makes me laugh mm-hmm. uh it's one of the it's one of the moments in the film that i that i just can't help enjoying yeah. a bit like sing while you sell in in the big store i know i know there's nothing going for it but i i just enjoy it it does show more than any scene 
preceding it in the movie, you know, a, a somewhat um, coherent attempt to create a developed comedy scene. And it has the percussive rhythm of Chico offering cigars. I, I think it goes in the category of things in this film and Go West, where Groucho's performance and and the way Groucho's being written for are huge liabilities. Do you realize if Jeff had been hit a little harder, the charge would have been murder? Pronounced murder? <laughs> wow. So what are you doing? <laughs> That's not what you do. And it's not what any funny person does. <laughs> um, and then um, it also has this, you know, in, in At the Circus and Go West, there are numerous moments where it feels like uh, they they seem to think that just reminding us of the stateroom scene in A Night at the Opera just a little bit is enough. So here they're in this small yeah. room trying to get something done. You know, you feel like, oh, this is going to be a stateroom scene. Um, they don't go anywhere with that. The other thing about it that's worth commenting on maybe is Harpo sneezing uh, rather vocally. That's him! Uh, yes, I I have to assume that it's an MGM library sneeze. I can't imagine that Harpo went in and recorded that and didn't say, hang on a minute, I probably shouldn't be doing this, should I? Uh, yeah. I imagine that the, the call went out saying, please supply one sneeze, sound effects depth. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I guess that must be right. Because, yeah, yeah, it's hard to imagine Harpo just not thinking of the fact that he doesn't talk on film and here he is mm. basically <laughs> saying achu yeah exactly yeah it isn't just a ch you know it's a hatch isn't it it's a, yeah. there's a a huge amount of voice in it yeah i remember yeah. when i was a kid finding that just jarring just because it's obviously so antithetical to everything mm. we've seen from him uh, he manages to get a lot done without using his voice so an involuntary vocal sneeze would seem far below him I don't know what it sounds like when a when a mute person sneezes. Obviously, they must get, uh, you know, their nasal membranes must get um, irritated and they must sneeze. So what it sounds like, I don't know. That's an interesting question. And like I mentioned earlier with the getting on the train scene, Chico is getting in his own way. In the Paramount films, he might be off kilter, he might have some illogic, but he was never infuriating. Here he's infuriating, pulling those cigars out time after time after time when he knows <laughs> that they're there to uh, to get one of his uh, Professor Adams cigars. And one other thing to mention is that Chico basically spills the beans about why they're there after about 20 seconds. What brings you here? Oh, nothing important. We just want to trap you into a confession. So it sort of, it sort of doesn't, doesn't even make sense why why the scene even continues. So that should be the end of the scene once Chico reveals uh, why they're there. Uh, we might mention uh, <laughs> Jerry Marin. Uh, Professor Adam is played by Jerry Marin, um, who he just died a couple of years ago uh, at the age of 98. He was, for a time, the oldest surviving munchkin from The Wizard of Oz. And in this film, for reasons unknown, he's credited as Jerry Marenghi. Would you want your real name? Uh, put on this film. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. We go. We're, we're back in the circus. Groucho is somehow chased into the ring by what was by animals or by clowns and stuff. He just gets caught up running on yeah. and interrupting Pauline in her act. I don't remember this, but 
he, she winds up on it on standing on his shoulders and he, he sees her feet on his shoulders and says something along the lines of i, I don't think that's mine does he <laughs> it's another example of like groucho wandering foolishly into a situation and having a person land on him now is it coming back to you matthew <laughs> no. <laughs> well, anyhow, uh, um, next we're in Pauline's tent, and Carter leaves the money with Pauline uh, because he knows he Carter knows that he's a being suspected by Groucho. So Pauline keeps the money for him, and Groucho comes in to woo her. I don't think he comes in to get the money, but he comes in to woo her. This is all becoming very foggy to me. How how does it come to pass that he thinks that she has the money? I mean, I, I, I have to admit, I was asleep through some of this film. Yeah. So I, I mean, I'd have to watch it. <laughs> it really says something, doesn't it? I've watched this film twice in the last couple of weeks, and I in the last week, and I do not remember why no. he suspects she has the money. So after some pedestrian back and forth, um, Pauline slips the uh, money into her, down her blouse. And if you'll notice, it starts on a wide shot. She's putting it in with one hand. And then it cuts to a close-up, and the hand is switched, and she's putting it in with another hand. Oh, good sleuthing. Uh, is this a chance to plug your, your spinoff series, Bob? Oh, my spinoff series. It's called Bob Gets Really Frustrated with Some Bad Edits in Mark Brothers Films. <laughs> That's a title. Look for it on YouTube. Remember the name. It's going to be big. So Pauline has the money down her blouse, and Groucho turns and gives you know perhaps the most quotable line of the film or the most noted line of the film there must be some way of getting that money without getting in trouble with the hayes office it's one of the it's bigger a, it's a good films, line so uh, it's a joke can't. that makes sense yeah, uh, yeah. it's admittedly a, a highlight here but um it is a little um i don't know ponderous the way the camera laboriously zooms in on his face and he holds his hat next to his mouth as though he's kind of whispering a secret to us um, it, it could have been uh, filmed and delivered more smoothly, um, but that's a nitpick. It, it is a, a winning joke. Yeah, it's a great joke. Yeah, I hate the nitpick too, but it doesn't seem quite as spontaneous as it should have. You know, so many of Groucho's best lines are just things that seems like he was making it up uh, on the spot. But this is such a setup with a zoom in, and you know, it's almost like there should be a drum roll there. Like, here comes the big line. You know, I, I just wish it had been more of a spontaneous aside to the camera. If I remember rightly, I think this this scene was one of the ones that was done as a retake. Yeah. Uh, directed by S. Sylvan Simon, I think his name was, rather than Bazell. And now we come to what is my least favorite moment in the entire Marx film uh, output. And that is Groucho stuck on the ceiling with uh, Pauline uh, yep. and then with him screaming for help. <clears throat> I am not going to play a clip of this, no matter how much money you offer me. Oh. Um, I'll tell you, the one thing that might have saved it is for his toupee to come falling off <laughs> in the middle of the scene. Exactly, yeah. So many of Groucho's most nauseating moments on film are in this scene. And, like, s screaming Pauline's name from the ceiling is definitely a big one. Yeah. Uh, but I think it might overshadow an equally nauseating moment. When Grouch is behind the screen and he's changing into this silk suit, um, and he says, "Don't look now, no peaky weaky." Yep. Come on, no peaky weaky. <laughs> I mean, this is the man who did the strange interlude scene in Animal Crackers, and now he's reduced to 
putting on a, a mm. long underwear and saying, no peeky-weeky, just hurts. It hurts deeply. Yes. And, yeah. but, you know, the scene is almost salvaged at the end when Harpo comes and lets him off and we hear Groucho fall and break break his neck, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Except, though. <Yeah. laughs> the bit, my big problem with that moment is that you can you can see... Whoever that body is that Harpo releases from the shoes, you can see the body land too early. You can see it hits the surface and goes rigid. So you you can tell that the 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 ground is much higher than it would be. It's a bit like that moment, you know, in Blazing Saddles, where um, they're on they're they're going into the quicksand, and they're supposedly sinking into quicksand. But you can actually see that the the guy who isn't Cleveland Little, you can see his hand is still staying at the same position as their bodies sink wait. down. So it's obvious just their bodies are sinking down rather than they're really going yeah, into quicksand. Wait, I'm going to have to look at this again. My yeah. memory of the scene is that you just see you're just seeing the close up of the shoes and Harpo and tying them. And then you just hear the sound of it hitting the ground. Maybe. Yeah, he unties the shoes, and then you see no, you see the legs fall. Yeah, you see the legs fall, and the and the, you can tell by the way the legs vibrate that the body has hit the ground. Oh, okay, I gotcha. Almost okay. instantaneously. Okay, all right. How yeah. do you guys feel about the um, technical aspects of this scene? Is it convincing? Do you think how did they do this? Is it an upside down set, or is there some genuine? walking on the ceiling um, trick being demonstrated live here? Good question. I've, I've never cared. <laughs> yeah, obviously the stuff with Groucho, some double, uh, did some upside-down stuff for him. I'll have to look at it again, but I'd really rather not. I mean, presumably that was a real circus yeah. act, walking on the ceiling mm -hmm. with, those, with those cup shoes. I imagine <laughs> that was a genuine circus mm -hmm. uh, trick. And we're, then we're back to Jeff and Julie lamenting their situation some more. And then we get the three brothers together. Uh, and w in a scene that we all love, they actually discuss the plot. It's a park bench scene. Now, of all the things you would expect them not to repeat from a day of the races, the musical number with the African-Americans would probably be at the top of the list. But guess what? They do it again. You know, while this one is, it's okay. It's not really as nearly as a as spectacular showcase as the previous one. It's a nice little number. I mean, if you're going to be offended, you're going to be offended. I, I can't really uh, debate that. Um, I don't find anything awful about it, but I don't think the number itself is anything near what the one at races was. Yeah. Whenever they, whenever the, these sequences, this one and the similar one in races come up, it, it often it seems to wind up um, interpreted as a conversation about whether you're personally offended. Um which to me is kind of not the point. I mean, if, if you are deeply personally offended by, by this sequence or the one like it in races, uh, fine. That's, you're entitled to that. To me, it's more a matter of just understanding what's going on here. And, you know, it's not, it's not maliciously intended. Nobody is accusing the Marx brothers or their collaborators of racism, but, Although it is not malicious, it's also not completely innocent. And, you know, this film, of course, is the same year as Gone with the Wind. How could you deny that um, Hollywood did have a vested um, political and economic interest in perpetuating romantic ideas about the antebellum South and, and racial stereotypes in general? Um, this scene is part of that, and um, it can't be exonerated any more than its creators can be accused 
Yeah, I mean, my position is that I think yeah. you you have to accept that it is, in terms of of that of that history, it is a it is a further step in in the in the right direction, and the idea that if anybody yes. went up to the Marx Brothers and said, "Hey, I've got a great idea for your new movie. How about we have a song and dance number where we make a load of black people look stupid." The Marx Brothers, uh, more than anyone else, would have said, "What? Get out of here! What are you talking about?" Uh, they they wouldn't have done yeah. it. They simply would not have done it if they thought it was anything other than a step in the right direction. And yes, obviously, it now looks several steps behind to us. But you know, I I pray God the future uh, views us with with the same kind of tolerance because it, 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 the whole point of the scene is is to to just just nudge things forward just a little bit yeah i agree there's, there's somebody recognizable in the scene i don't know if you noticed um from a, it's a wonderful life the woman who played annie the bailey family maid uh, is in the scene she's a taller woman wearing a hat and then uh this evolves and we get our harpo solo uh blue moon with a little uh touch of a swing low sweet chariot thrown in there for good measure Yes, not one more sweet cheerio. <laughs> yes, that's, that's actually made it to Britain. <laughs> and the, the scene ends with uh, not only applause by the other characters in the scene, but what sounds like a studio audience applauding. <laughs> you ever hear anything more phony? Anyhow, we're off to Dukesbury Manor, where Groucho is finally meeting up with uh, Susanna Dukesbury, uh, Margaret Dumont. Uh, we meet the uh, white and the loafer butler. <laughs> <laughs> and when Loophole confronts Maggie, uh, we're a bit more on familiar turf here. Not top flight Groucho, but uh, a little more uh, normal, a little more uh, what we're used to. Is he, though? I don't know. I think it might just be the presence of Margaret Dumont. I mean, she she doesn't appear until we're almost an hour into this movie, which is an unusual and and wrong-handed. But maybe just the impact of the two of them together feels more like old times. And and occasionally there's a good line or two here. I like one guy isn't enough. She's got to have a convention. When when she's said that they must have regard for certain conventions, that's a pretty strong line. Uh, his little uh, parody of Oh Susanna that he lapses into is almost as nauseating as No mm. Peaky Weaky. <laughs> oh Susanna, oh Susanna, oh won't you fly with me? For I need $10,000, cause the sheriff's after me. And as has been pointed out to us, Groucho once again has re-recorded his uh, ah. singing here. Yes. Because if you look yeah. at his mouth, he's saying a totally different line. Uh, I'm very curious as to what was cut or what was replaced here. So if we have any lip readers out there, please, please help us out. Let us know what's going on. Uh, and we do get in this scene, we can add uh, French to the many unconvincing accents Groucho has occasionally <laughs> put on. Ah, but you do not know about the rate of exchange. You see, in La Belle France, $7,500 is uh, over 150,000 francs. While in this country, $7,500 is, uh, well, $7,500. Like when he lapses into his uh, cowboy character or uh, occasionally uh, something else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, do I go around saying, you're not Missouri Fontaine? 
It's it's uh, just a pale shadow of the Miss Bailey uh, stuff in Horse Feathers, mm, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting as well, the point you made, Noah, about um, the uh, convention joke, um, because that supposedly mm-hmm. was Irving Brecker's forte. He was a gag man. So I would be prepared to accept that he wasn't particularly good at structuring scenes or giving them uh, extended sketches that, that were particularly strong if um, there was a constant uh, high batting average of 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 gags but there really isn't is there they, they they're they're once in a blue moon here yeah surprisingly few mm-hmm. i mean so much so that you could just make a brief list i mean i wrote down all the lines i thought were good you know there's <laughs> there's really not very many but that is a good not just a good line but a good groucho line mm, yes mm-hmm. the humor is a hair a hair racier than you would expect from an mgm susanna I, uh, I hate to bring up money matters in a bedroom, but, uh... But what? Well, uh, just write me out a check for $10,000 and everybody will be happy, including the gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> but I love, I love Maggie's expression here, but the what? Like, <laughs> what are you getting at, Groucho? <laughs> there is a whisper of the old dynamic when the butler returns and Dumont immediately confides in Groucho. Oh, what am I going to do? He's coming back. You know, they they're, have immediately established their partnership against all odds. <laughs> and so so this seems it's, it's okay. It seems like maybe we're starting to get somewhere, you know, in the film. But this one, we think we're getting somewhere. We get a reprise of uh, Two Blind Loves. Okay. <laughs> I know. That makes four blind loves. <laughs> now, things get a bit interesting. Uh, Chico and Harpo decide to uh, search Goliath's room for the money. And what we get here is probably the last thing we expected at this point in this film. And that is a really good scene. Like, what? Just before that scene begins, when they are in the, the double bunk train car... Uh, we get something that we very rarely get. Yeah. Do you know, do you know what that is? A live sheep. <laughs> we get we get a good, clear, lingering view of Chico's wig without its hat, seeing as we are very much on the wig theme. Yes, indeed. Sometimes it seems as though his his wig is attached to his hat. Yes, it's like it's one piece. <laughs> so when you see them separated, it is noteworthy. But as we're saying, you know, this is a quite a good scene with the, in the Goliath's uh, cabin. Um, they need to be quiet and find the money, but they don't really seem to care. And Harpo would just seems like he'd much rather have fun. Yeah, you know, this is the Marx Brothers. This is what they're all about. Yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah, we even get a moment of the old Harpo magic when the lights come back on and he's up on the hangar in Goliath's uh, jacket. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's Paramount stuff. Yep, you get Chico joining in as well. So, hey, Santa Claus, you yeah. know that. He, uh, and also the, the the fact that them simply saying yeah. "rockabye baby" to Goliath actually does put him right. to sleep. It's it's an utterly logic free zone, and it's wonderful. I think it's it, as much as anything in a night at the opera. I think this is the one scene yeah. after Duck yeah. Soup that you could slip into a, a compilation of of, of clips, uh, and people would think was paramount. Yeah, this scene as is could have been dropped right into the middle of horse feathers and yep. it would have fit perfectly. And yeah. Uh, like before it's a blessing that Groucho wasn't there cuz he very likely would have just Sadly, uh, yes. distracted from things. Um next we see Groucho calling uh Jardinet's uh, uh ship to get him 
accuse him of being part of a dope ring? <laughs> is that yeah, what's going it's on a little, here? Yeah, he calls the captain of the ship that Chardonnay is traveling on. Yeah. Uh, before that, he calls uh, Kenny Baker, who has his, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I know I ask this in my book, but, you, but between you, explain to me, wh- what is Groucho's plan here? I know what happens, but what what is he intending to happen? His plan, <laughs> his plan is that when Jardinet doesn't arrive, the circus will be thrown in as emergency entertainment, and Maggie will be in no position to decline. And so she will come round to the the joys of circus, basically. Yeah, they're thinking all she has to do is see the circus and she'll change her mind. Because <laughs> she has this completely false idea of what a circus is. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. not that she doesn't like it or she thinks it's beneath yeah. her. She just doesn't know what goes on in one. Okay, fine. I just wish the captain on uh, the ship they called it had been the guy from Monkey Business. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm an old goat, am I? <laughs> this seems like a very interesting uh, part of the plot that I actually wish would have been developed more. This whole thing with Jardinet being accused of a crime and yeah. all that. I think that would have been a fun thing to explore. So now we head towards the finale with the third act of the film, uh, starting with the dinner party in Dukesbury Manor. This is, this is a, first of all, this is a very extravagant scene, a lot of extras. Uh, you wish they would have maybe saved some money here and hired a couple more writers for the film. <laughs> <laughs> but as it is, this, this is probably Groucho's highlight of the film. Uh, he, he seems, uh, uh, his old self here, um, having another cup of coffee, uh, and just getting on everybody's nerves. And good evening, friends. I think that's all very good. Elephants at your age. Can I quote you on that? You know, I think there's some good stuff here. Although at one point I'm a little frustrated because they cut back and Groucho is actually finishing a speech. And I'm like, damn it, come on. Why did they cut away and we missed the speech? We come in at the end? Uh, come on. There's something about like the 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 gag with getting a cup of coffee and watching the entire Newport 400 have to sit down again. You know that's all fine, but it seems like um, a connection ought to be made between this gag and Groucho's overcaffeinated performance throughout this movie. <laughs> Never thought of that. That's good. Uh, how about that giraffe licking Margaret Dumont's back? Thinks it's Groucho. I think she thinks it's Groucho, yeah. right? <laughs> oh, Groucho's tongue. I suppose. <laughs> or his wet hand. Oh, Cheever. <laughs> yeah, not here, Cheever. And we got all this nonsense going on with uh, them setting up the circus and the fights. And Though I do like uh, Harpo running around uh, riding on an ostrich. Uh, brings to mind the imagery from uh, Horseback Salad, actually. Yeah. It Harpo is very Horseback ostrich. Salad. That's yes. a, a good yeah. image. Ostrich back salad. It's reminiscent a little bit of the that bicycle insert in Monkey Business, too, isn't it? Yeah. And Jardinet comes in barking at everyone about how he's been treated on the ship and everywhere in the animals. And the boys uh, put he and uh, his orchestra on the floating bandstand and send them off into the uh, Long Island Sound. Um, you know, it's surprising how little... Uh, screen time this uh, actually gets, although so many people remembered as the finale of the film. This really is basically just a cutaway gag. It's just, it's actually better than what they're cutting away from. Uh, the, the moment when the curtain opens, and much to everyone's surprise, an entire three ring circus has been set up in the adjoining room. That's a little hard to, hard to swallow. <laughs> Did this never happen out by you? I've never experienced it. No. 
Yeah. Huh. So I, I always know when a three ring circus is being set up in the next room. <laughs> and so Jeff is singing to Julie. Yeah. Julie's filling in for the horse. Julie is the uh, horse. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And Jeff is Julie. Julie's the horse. Yeah. It's good. It's good stuff. <laughs> This is where the film comes alive. For Listen, me. it's not malicious. It's a product of the time. <laughs> Hollywood had a vested interest in making women look like horses. Yeah, and, uh, and he gives her those little those little taps with the whip, doesn't he? Just just little gentle taps. So he's yeah. you know he's not actually whipping her, but he's saying yeah. you know I could be whipping you. It's very very sexy stuff. <laughs> Well, I mean, his aunt is being licked by a giraffe. This is easily the kinkiest Marx Brothers movie. S&M, whip play, and um, bestiality. And I think we could all picture Irving Brecker at his uh, typewriter, like, for a whole weekend, pacing back and forth, ripping his hair out, like, what do I do next? And then he goes, aha, I got it. The gorilla gets loose. (laughs) (laughs) The shot of Groucho and Margaret Dumont... um, sharing a bottle of coke um through two mm. straws um i that i think is a very charming image and i actually have that still hanging in my kitchen um and i suppose i like it enough to forgive that toupee which is mm. hanging in my kitchen <laughs> i don't find that so funny they're not exactly practicing uh, social distancing so, <laughs> nah. you know uh you can laugh at that if you want but uh, that's a good point i don't think that's going to be in any future uh release of the film that's going to get cut <laughs> Yeah, that's what life used to be like. And soon uh, we see Maggie being shot out of a cannon, which uh, was another genius stroke off the pen of uh, Irving Brecker. <laughs> a pretty decent line from Chico. I'm sorry, Mrs. Dukesbury, I didn't know it was loaded. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> and then the film sort of ends sort of abruptly with the gorilla counting the money. There's no like resolution to like with the circus or the romance or, or anything. It's sort of like, Oh, we got the money back. The gorilla's counting it. Is it all there? Yeah. Abruptly but well, I think. It's my favorite MGM ending. Um, it's not my favorite MGM finale, but it is my favorite MGM ending. My favorite MGM fade out with the, the orchestra disappearing. I think it's a, it's a very, very nice ending, I think. You know, as we uh, are watching these films again for the podcast, the opinions I thought I had on some of them aren't necessarily the the way that it panned out. Uh, some of them I liked a bit better than I thought I did previously. Uh, room service and uh, the coconuts, uh, uh, for example. I actually enjoyed those uh, quite a bit more than I have in the past. And a couple uh, didn't quite live up to what I thought, how much I liked them. Um, I know I'm going to get raked over the coals for this, but monkey business, as much as I love it, it didn't uh, hit me as the top of their Paramount uh, output. I actually put it as the least of their Paramount films uh, right now. And um, At the Circus, this one here, uh, I liked the parts that I thought I did, but the parts that I didn't like really took the experience down for me. And even though I still think this is the funniest of the latter three MGMs, I do think that my overall experience of watching uh, The Big Store was more enjoyable. I know we usually uh, grade Mark's films by how funny they are, but uh, this may be the one case where you have to go beyond that. Yeah, I find Big Storm the more pleasant one to watch, but 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 At the Circus is is the only one that has got three or four good um, laugh highlights in it. 
As I said earlier, this this one, I, I really don't like this one very much. As with all the Marx Brothers movies, it's better to see them at all than to not see them. And, and that covers everything they ever did. But this one, um, I, I wouldn't put this on and watch it, you know. Ever again? <laughs> I'm sure I haven't seen it for the last time. But also, as I mentioned earlier, I have seen this one many dozens of times because in the early days of my interest in the Marx Brothers, I just acquired it early. Um, I I remember taping from AMC back when it was showing American movie classics, like uh, in the, I guess, early 90s, AMC was what TCM is now. And I recorded At the Circus and Go West, both with introductions by Ben Mankiewicz and also a little feature with Arthur Marks giving a tour of the house in Great Neck. That was interesting. Um, maybe it wasn't Great Neck. One of, one of the Groucho houses. Anyway, uh, so I, I did watch this over and over again pretty early on in my Marx Brothers yeah. days, and I liked it enough to keep watching it. But now I would say I get almost no joy out of it. <laughs> I'm not crazy about the circus either, and that might be part of it. Like the whole atmosphere of the circus, for me, it's not a happy place. I, a lot of my friends in the, you know, vintage entertainment and performing arts world are real scholars of the circus and, and, and love it as an art form. And, uh, they are, they are right about its virtues. But personally, you know, my childhood experiences with the circus is just being sort of feeling bad for the animals and not terribly amused by the clowns. And the whole thing just is a bitter taste for me. Whereas I feel very uh, sentimental and romantic about my time in the Old West. <laughs> I think overall now, out of those out of those last three, I do find the big store the most the most pleasant to watch because it doesn't have anything in it that kind of gets under my skin in the way that the worst moments of of at the circus and go west do. But but out of at the circus and go west, I think at the circus is is the clear winner. Um, I like the cigar sketch. I like the um, another cup of coffee moment. I like Lydia. You know. To, to a to a large extent and uh, obviously the, the the strong man's room and i don't think there's anything approaching mm -hmm. those highlights in the other two mgms but um it it is a difficult film to warm up to for all the reasons we've said um a lot of it is sort of unpleasant i mean i, I don't want to to belabor uh that because a lot of people say and quite rightly that these are these are trivial distractions and really you know we should be we should be above them but i think it does make it hard to enjoy it we should point out a couple more things related to the uh, production of this film first of all this one did not go out on a road tour uh it was planned to but uh for some reason this studio claimed there were time constraints so they had to get it into production as soon as possible so they did not go on a road tour for this one and I'm sure a lot of people are like saying, nah, see, that's why it's not so good. Well, all you have to do is look at their, their next film, uh, Go West, which did go on a road tour and uh, isn't appreciably better. So exactly, you yeah. can make of that what you will. Um, the other thing I want to mention is that there was a small uh, news item in early 1939 saying that production of the film was being shut down. Everything was on hold because... The entire film had to be rewritten from scratch. They were throwing out the entire script. Yes. Now, exactly what happened here is probably, you know, is anybody's guess, but 
all we could say is that we know that people weren't happy with it, uh, even at this point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, God knows what, what it was like before. Yeah. But I do find it uh, fascinating that even at the time, everyone involved seemed to think, oh, this is a lesser Mark's effort. Okay, we sort of missed the mark with this one. But they basically went back and used the same modus operandi for their next film. They didn't say, okay, we need to get different writers. We, mm. we need a different director. We need to do something different. They, they did basically the exact same mm. thing again. They did the same mistakes twice in a row. Yeah, I mean, Bazell says, doesn't he, in in, uh, in his interview with Barry Norman, that they were just, that Groucho in particular was extremely lazy and he just had no interest. He had no interest in what he was doing at all. So I think it is a case, unfortunately, of them just coming in, doing what they're told, hitting the mark, saying the lines and going home. And I don't think mm. they had any desire to, to improve things at this point. It is quite a difference than, you know, we read the stories about the making of monkey business and how they all sat down together and read the script and the Marxists were very unhappy and demanded that things mm. get redone. Those days were, yeah. were over. It is sad. And, and it is very easy to kind of resent the fact that there are so few Marx Brothers films, you know, compared to Chaplin or Laurel and Hardy or, or almost anybody else. You know, the, 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 the head count of Marx movies is so, so low that it is a it is a great shame to see uh you know a decline setting in you would think if they were if they had deliberately decided to make one film a year and to pace themselves and to not outstay their welcome that that some real effort would go in over the course of that year but this is the moment mm -hmm. where we just see uh, all effort just trailing away yeah and it's a it's a particularly uh, detrimental to the Marx Brothers because enthusiasm is is their currency. And in all of their best work, yes. it's this kind of unbridled, j joyful, but also slightly vehement enthusiasm. And so the minute you get the impression that that enthusiasm is is false or that it's being dredged up by guys who exactly would much rather not be on a movie set at six in the morning it it threatens the integrity of the whole idea of the marx brothers yeah mm -hmm. you can't fake it you know or rather you can but it's obvious and what we see throughout this film is the marx brothers faking it and except for an occasional flash in in uh, night in casablanca maybe we basically don't see the Groucho enthusiasm again until you bet your life, or, you know, a different oh. kind of enthusiasm. But in, in you bet your life, you can yes. tell that he wants this job. He likes doing this. It's very well suited to his talents. Exactly. And he's vital again. He cares about it. Um, but making Marx Brothers movies, he just didn't have the enthusiasm at this point. Yeah. You know, I feel bad because we're going to get a lot of feedback. There's a lot of fans who really like this film. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, say you shouldn't there there's a lot to like here there are a lot of gags and you know and if you're not a student of the marxes you're just a, a casual fan uh, there's no reason uh you're not going to like it there's a, there's a lot of funny stuff so don't feel like we're criticizing you for liking the film <laughs> except for scott alexander we are criticizing you <laughs> well you know as with all great artists there's just an assumption that they are that they are great. We love them. You know, if At the Circus were their only film, I'd watch it once a week, you know. But uh, fortunately, I don't have to because they made, they did so much better work. But, you know, it, there is something about um, 
you know, feeling defensive of your heroes, like saying anything derogatory about a Marx Brothers movie. Yeah, maybe we should get our backs up ever so slightly about that, because that makes sense. It's as with Shakespeare. Some of Shakespeare's lesser plays, um, they enhance our appreciation of his better plays, because they underline what was so special about him when he was at his best. This is very much at the heart of the difference of opinion I have with people who, who don't like me saying that certain anecdotes about them are probably not true, like them, uh, you know, stripping off their, their clothes in Thalberg's office. And they sort of say, well, you know, don't, don't spoil it. You're, you're taking away, you're taking away some of the magic. But my, my feeling is that, that seeing them as real people who obviously wouldn't do that anywhere outside of a press release, um, is, is more interesting. I'm not really interested in a in a kind of a of a fake view of them as exactly the people that they were on the screen i'm much more interested in knowing what goes on behind the scenes and how their different personalities fed into what happens and things like that and i think there is a tremendous reluctance to let go of the idea that what you see in the movies is what they actually were I find it exhilarating that they were human, that they were flawed, that not everything they touched turned to gold. Yeah. Makes them, among other things, easier to identify with. It's not that these guys were just born talented and, and were, you know, had the golden touch from the start. They worked really hard on the stuff that, where they were excellent. Um, and over the course of a lifetime, you, you don't put in that, that kind of effort, you know, necessarily every day over the course of an entire career. They were more like us than we realize. Do we have to talk anymore about At the Circus? Nah. Nah. <laughs> I, I think I've said it. <laughs> I got to tell you, that butler really was a fascinating character. I wish they would have gone into him in a little more depth. What, what's his background? What's his name? Whitcomb? Is that it? <laughs> yeah, Whitcomb, played by Barnett Parker. He was a British actor. He died just... Uh, Less than two years after this film was released, okay. it's just Butler, 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 Butler. His his filmography. He was in Gone with the Wind, obviously. Robert Craig wasn't available. Yeah. So that's going to about do it. I hope we haven't uh, turned you off on the film too much because it certainly is totally bummed you out. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly is worth uh, worth watching at least once. And uh, before we go, I want to point out that there is a 1970s performance of Lydia that you could actually watch uh, by Groucho, and it's on the new website, GroucholMarks.com, uh, which is hosted by a friend, Frank Ferrante. You could go there and see some clips and see some good stuff, and you'll see this performance from the Marty Feldman Show, which I believe was from 1971, 1972. Uh, it's worth checking out. Other than that, I think... Uh, I think we're going to get out of here, and uh, we are going to play another song before we go. And uh, no one knows what it is. That's why he's laughing. No one wants to tell us about the song. Well, you know what's coming, <laughs> folks. Here he is, the one, the only, Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Sing, Groucho. <laughs> oh, Lydia, oh, Lydia, say, have you met Lydia? Lydia, the tattooed lady. She has eyes that men adore so, and a torso even more so. Lydia, oh Lydia, that encyclopedia, oh Lydia, the queen of tattoo. On her back is the Battle of Waterloo, 
Beside it, the wreck of the Hesperus too, and proudly above waves the red, white, and blue. You can learn a lot from Lydia. La la la. When a robe is unfurled, she will show you the world If you'll step up and tell her where For a dime you can see Kankakee or Patty Or Washington crossing the Delaware Oh Lydia, oh Lydia, say have you met Lydia Lydia the tattooed lady when her muscles start relaxing, up the hill comes Andrew Jackson. Lydia, Lydia, that encyclopedia, oh Lydia, the queen of them all. For to bit she will do a massacre in jazz, with a view of Niagara that nobody has. And on a clear day you can see Alcatraz, you can learn a lot from Lydia. See Buffalo Bill with his lasso, just a little classic by Mendel Picasso. His Captain Spaulding exploring the Amazon. His Godiva, but with her pajamas on. Oh, Lydia, oh, Lydia, say, have you met Lydia? Lydia, the tattooed lady. When she stands, the world grows little. When she sits, she sits on Hitler. Lydia, oh Lydia, that encyclopedia. Oh Lydia, the queen of them all. She once swept an admiral clear off his feet. The ships on her hips made his heart skip a beat. And now the old boy's in command of the fleet. For he went and married Lydia. I said Lydia. I said Lydia. The Marx Brothers Council Podcast is hosted by Matthew Conium, Noah Diamond, and Bob Gassell, and is produced and edited by Bob Gassell. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by leaving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. Matthew Conium's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, The Solo Career of Groucho Marx, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of Alsatias, The Lost Marx Brothers Musical, is published by Bear Manor Media. Both can be found at major book outlets. Please visit our website at marxbrotherscouncilpodcast.com. Also look for us on Twitter. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. This is Heidi Gassell. We'll see you next time.